Take your Bibles and turn with me to John 15, if you would please. Uh, we will not be back in the book of Acts until probably about two weeks from now. I wanted to bring a message to you, I think timely, for the week after Easter. Uh, what to do until Christ returns. What to do until Christ returns. So find John chapter 15 and we'll be reading uh, verses 1 to 11. Okay? Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Jesus said, I'm the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be, made, may be full. Father, we thank you so much for the instruction that your son gave to his disciples in the hours before his crucifixion. Lord, we know that they were about to face many trials and tribulations. And they were going to be without the physical presence of Christ with them. But there were promises that they needed to understand and quite frankly that we need to understand today. Lord, we too live in a dark world. It seems like it's getting worse by the week as we look at headlines. And we could look at that and grow discouraged. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be mindful first and foremost, of our relationship with you. Because if we'll keep our eyes on you, you'll give us direction and focus for the other things pertaining to life. Lord, help us to live faithfully until you return. Now, Lord, I would ask that you would use this message in our hearts. Speak to someone today. Lord, all I can do is speak to ears. You have to speak to the mind and the heart. And we pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would be pleased to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For 11 years, a man, a man by the name of Mirhan Karimi Nasari was a man without a country. For 11 years, he lived in a Paris airport. He had no passport. He had no citizenship. He had no papers that allowed him to leave the airport or fly to another country. You see, he had been expelled from his native country of Iran. Then he was sent away from Paris, France, because he lacked all the proper documentation. He said his Belgium-issued refugee documentation had been stolen. They put him on a plane, flew him to London, England. London returned him to the Paris airport. When he returned to Paris in 1988, airport authorities allowed him to live in Terminal 1 and there he stayed for 11 years. He wrote in a diary. He lived off of handouts from airport employees. He cleaned up in the airport bathroom. And then in September of 1999, his situation was reversed. French authorities presented 
uh, Nasari with an international travel card and a French residency permit. Suddenly, he was free to live anywhere in the country that he wanted to. But when airport officials handed him his walking papers to everyone's amazement and surprise, he simply smiled and tucked the documents away inside of his folder and he resumed writing in his diary. They found that he was afraid to leave the bench and the table that had been his home for 11 years. He had become what we call institutionalized. As the days passed and Nasari refused to leave, officials said they would not throw him out of the airport, but they would instead take time to gently lead him and patiently coax him to find a new home. Again, that was 1999. He ended up leaving the airport in 2006 after 17 years of living inside of Terminal 1. And yes, to answer the question that I'm sure is on your minds, the New York Times reported in 2003 that his life was Steven Spielberg's inspiration behind the movie Terminal starring Tom Hanks. DreamWorks paid royalties to Nasari, but without a bank account, the checks were never deposited, at least not while Nasari was living in Terminal 1. Reports have it today that he is living inside of a homeless shelter in Paris, France. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Folks, the Bible boldly proclaims that we have a future home. Aren't you glad of that? We have a future home. And it also tells us that where we live now is not our true home. In fact, the Bible describes you and me as strangers who are just passing through. We are pilgrims passing through. And you know, it's easy, just like Nasari, to grow accustomed to our present surroundings to the point that we're afraid to think about anything else. But as believers, we must get used to the fact that we are indeed only strangers passing through. We're to be looking for that city as Abraham was, whose builder and maker is God. Jesus was about to leave his disciples. He was going to the cross to be crucified. He was going to be laid in a tomb. And after three days, he would be raised from the dead. And then 40 days following that, he would ascend to the Father and his disciples would be all alone. And yet, they would not really be alone. Not only would they have one another, but more importantly, they would have the promise of the Father. Jesus told them, I will pray to the Father that he will send you another like me, and he will always be with you. He will be your helper and your teacher and your comforter and your counselor. Jesus said, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. Forty days later, Jesus would ascend back to the Father. And the Holy Spirit would come as promised on the day of Pentecost. But folks, still Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples how to live in a post-resurrection world. Last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of how we need to be living in a post-resurrection world. Jesus reminds his disciples and us that there are three relationships that we've got to be mindful of. And the first is the most important. 
We've got to maintain our relationship to Him. We've got to abide in Him because as He said here, we're nothing without Him and can do nothing without Him. And in fact, as we're mindful of that relationship, it's going to bring meaning and purpose to all of our other relationships. Then the second relationship he told them about was their relationship to one another. They needed to love one another. And Jesus said, greater love is no man than this, that he, than he laid down his life for his friends. He said, you've seen my example and what I've done for you, you're to do for one another. And then thirdly, there would be the relationship with the world, with the unbelievers. He said, I want you to understand the unbelievers are not going to receive you. In fact, they're going to despise you. They're going to hate you. And there's a reason they're going to hate you and oppose you because they opposed me. And he said, the servant is not greater than the master. So if they did that to me, they'll do it to you. Three relationships that we need to be reminded of. On this first Sunday after Easter, I want us to be reminded, though, of the priority of that first relationship, the one with Christ. How are you doing at that? Are you abiding? Because, again, what we do with Jesus Christ is vital to everything else in our lives. First thing I want you to see, and here's where we'll spend most of our time this morning, point number one, God's role in the life of a believer. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is pointing out here that he is the one who is the source of our lives. He's the true source of our life, of our spiritual life. He, he's painting a very powerful image here. This image of a vine and a branch. And it's the equivalent to the Apostle Paul speaking of the body of Christ and Christ himself is the head of the body and we are all individually members of that body. And yet the analogy that, that Jesus uses here, if anything, is even more intense than the relationship of a body, the different members to one another. Because see, in the, in the relationship of the vine and branches, the branches have no life whatsoever without the vine. Any life that we have, we draw exclusively from the life of the vine. That's what a vine does, gives life. And so there's got to be a vital connection to the Lord Jesus Christ if you and I are going to have true eternal life. Now, most agree this is the last I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Remember those I am statements? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the door into the sheepfold. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Seven times in the Gospel of John, with this being the last I am statement, I am the true vine. And most scholars believe that what he is doing is he is making a reference to this same analogy in the Old Testament and he's bringing fulfillment to that analogy. You see, in the Old Testament, Time and time again, Israel, the nation Israel, the people of God that God had led out of Egypt and into the promised land, Israel was described as the vine. But repeatedly in the Old Testament where Israel is described as the vine, it is pointed out that Israel had failed in that role. Israel had failed to be the light to the nations that she was supposed to be. Isaiah chapter 5 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. In the Hebrew, literally, it yielded stink berries. 
I looked for good grapes but found stink berries. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. So Israel had failed in that role. Israel was a type or a shadow in this role of what Jesus would be truly, faithfully. Jesus was the true vine that would uh, raise out of the nation of Israel, of Jew son of God but son of man, Jewish blood according to humanity. He would arise as the true, van a true vine to be, to be the salvation of mankind for all who trust in him. Now folks, the significance here is the fact that the average Jew that was listening to Jesus other than his disciples and maybe even some of them, the average Jew listening to this would have believed that a connection to Israel is what would save them. In other words, they would be saved by being sons of Abraham. They would be saved by being of one of, the, one of the tribes of Israel, their heredity. But as the Bible points out, heredity cannot save. Paul had to remind the Jews in the book of Romans that the true child of God is the one who comes to faith in Jesus. Yes, God chose the Jew and that was a great privilege but he chose them to go and bear fruit to the other nations. They failed because they thought it was all a matter of externals. Now praise God, God's not done with the Jews yet. The Bible says that right now we're in the times of the Gentiles and Paul gives that image in Romans 9 uh, through 11 and talking about the olive tree and the branches and, and how temporarily the natural branches have been broken off that the wild branch, you and I, the Gentile can be grafted in but Paul says at the end of the times of the Gentiles God's going to do something to stir the Jew to jealousy and so a complete number of Israel will be saved. So he's not done with them. But they failed in this relationship of being the, the vine. And again, they thought the connection was just through who they were as God's chosen people. And that's like a lot of people today. They may think they're right with God because of their family or their background or their heritage. They may say, you know what? I'm Catholic. You knock on their door to share Jesus with them. Hey, I'm good. You don't need to talk to me. I'm Catholic. Or hey, I've been a lifelong Baptist. I joined the local Baptist church and was baptized. So you don't need to come here and share the gospel with me. You don't need to talk to Jesus, talk about Jesus to me. I'm good. I've been baptized. I've joined the church. But folks, the church isn't the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. You've got to be connected to the vine. Religion can't save either. God told Israel, I'm sick of your solemn assemblies and your offerings. They felt that life came out of their liturgy, their religious observance. But here again, people think that way too. Years ago, I was speaking with a young man and he felt like he was perfectly fine. He could go out and do anything in his life he wanted to do. He said, Scott, uh, uh, this coming weekend I'll, I'll go into the confessional booth and I'll make confession and I'll attend the services and then next week I'll go out and I can do... And he literally said this. I mean, these aren't things I'm implying. He said, I can go out and live any way that I want to and just so I go to church this weekend and our church services and partake of communion and go to confession I'm fine I can do anything I want to do in my life too many people have that understanding it's a false understanding the question is have you been born again are you connected to Jesus he's the vine 
He gives life even as a vine gives life to branches. As the true vine, Jesus saves. He's the source of life. Folks, do you hear what he's saying? There is no true life apart from him. I believe the reason so many Christians have little joy and strength in their Christian life is because while they may be saved, there's no daily fellowship with the Lord. There's no nourishment going on. They're not in the Word of God. They're not in prayer. Jesus promises that He will nourish us and feed us as we're connected with Him. Remember what He said to the woman at the well there in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman? He said that if she would believe in Him, He would be like that artesian well springing up in her and giving life-giving water. She misunderstood Him. She said, sir, give me this water now so I won't have to keep coming back to this well every single day and fetching water. She misunderstood what he was talking about. A relationship with Jesus being connected to the true vine. Jesus promises that he will be like a spiritual artesian well springing up in us, nourishing us daily and constantly. But what do we do? We get up and we go about our day and many days we don't even think about the Lord. Is it any wonder that we're so weak and anemic? Folks, I want to challenge you today to have that daily quiet time. Get on a Bible reading plan that you can flourish with. If you set out to read the Bible in six months, if you've never been on a Bible reading plan and you jump in there and you say, boy, I'm going to read it through in six months, you're probably going to get discouraged and fail. Get on a plan that works for you. A, a, a plan that paces it according to what you're able to take care of. And folks, as you do so, Jesus will feed you. But you've got to come to the table and you've got to put your feet under the table. And you've got to get your fork out. Do you understand what I'm saying? People say all the time, I can't do what God expects me to do. Well, you're exactly right. You and I can't live the Christian life and do everything we're supposed to do. What Jesus is saying, your role and my role is, is we need to concentrate on abiding in Him. And when we abide in Him and He in us, He will live His life through us. And we'll be able to do then what He's commanded us to do. It's not in our strength. It's to be through Him. Christ will nourish you. He will help you. And he points out here also that he joins us to God. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. To have Jesus means that you not only have the life that the vine gives, but you get a relationship with the gardener as well. In fact, that's how you get a relationship with the gardener. You get a relationship with the gardener through the vine. Paul says in Romans 5.1, being justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. We're reconciled with God through Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Jesus died for us to reconcile us to the Father, to take care of our sin, put us back in a relationship with the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. He's the way to have the relationship with the gardener. There is no relationship with the gardener, with the heavenly Father, apart from the vine, who's Jesus. Now let's think about what all we have going on here. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus talking to the Father. In John chapter 14, rather. Also in John chapter 14, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit who will indwell us. John chapter 15, we have Jesus taking us to the Father. And so between chapters 14 and 15, we see every single member of the Trinity at work in us. And every member of the Trinity has a specific role. We see Jesus bringing life. We see the Spirit bringing comfort. And we see the Father bringing maturity and discipline. 
Jesus says of the Father here in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, uh, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now in verse 2, when Jesus says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. One writer ha has said what we need to understand here is, is what this word take away literally means. The word literally means he lifts up. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Is the literal translation. And he goes on to explain what, what's being talked about here. Is, and anybody who has ever had a grapevine or something in your backyard, you, you probably know this. If you're planting squash or cucumbers or melons or anything like that, you can just let those vines crawl all over the ground and they will bear fruit. They will, they will produce the fruit of the vegetable that's in them. But not so with a grapevine. A grapevine that is left just to crawl along the ground will not bear fruit. The vine will grow, the branches will grow, but you'll get no mature fruit on it. To bear fruit, a vine has to be lifted up. That's why when you drive down the highway and you see all these vineyards, all these grapevines, what do you always see? Do you see the vines crawling on the ground? No, you see them lifted up. They're on wires or strings and they're on posts. They're lifted up because that's the only way they're going to bear mature fruit. After they're lifted up, they're pruned. And Jesus said that's what the Father does. Pruning can be painful. That's the chastening, the discipline that Hebrews 12 says that the Father does in everybody's life who is a child of His. He says if you're without discipline, you're not really a child of God. Because if you're a child of God, the Father is going to discipline you. And that discipline is actually a sign of authentic sonship. Jesus said the gardener is going to lift you up. He's going to prune you. And interesting too that a new grapevine was not allowed to bear fruit for up to three years. They would lift it up, a vine that wasn't producing. The gardener would lift it up and prune it. And then as it was growing new branches and fruit beginning to show up, he would prune it back again. And he would keep doing this for a period of three years, not allowing that vine to produce fruit until the vine and the branches themselves got hardy enough that they could produce good fruit. And then even after it was well established, every year the gardener would tr trim away the, the branches. And so what's being described here is not an overnight process. But folks, what I want you to see is, is the beautiful analogy that Jesus is giving here of the Father's work in us. You see, something happens at conversion. At conversion, we're changed. We have a new master. Sin is no longer our master. We haven't beaten that battle altogether yet. We want till we see Jesus. But the difference is now as a believer, sin is not your master, whereas once it was. But now you're under new management. You have a new master. But we, we come into the kingdom, we're born into the kingdom, and we have all those bad habits, all that sin from a lifetime of sin. And I've seen in some cases where people were changed overnight, even terrible things they were involved in overnight, no longer any desire for them. Others, maybe it's taken a decade or the rest of their life to conquer some of those things. Sometimes we wonder why Christians aren't changed overnight. The answer is that lifting up and pruning go on and on and on. It is a never-ending process. There will never be a time in your life, there will never be a time in my life that I can say, okay, God, you can leave me alone now. I've arrived. You can move on to somebody else. I'm perfect now. There won't ever be that time. 
The key is, though, this process is underway. And that's what Paul was describing in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he said, But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. You see that? Being transformed from glory to glory. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. But in these verses, what Jesus is describing is the Father's, uh, God's, God's work in us, specifically the Son and the Father. He's the source of our life, and then, and then the Father prunes us and disciplines us and matures us. So that's the first key to living in a post-resurrection world. Has His work taken place? Have I come to the Father through the Son? And is that pruning and disciplining going on in my life? Second thing I want you to see, the role of the Word of God in the life of a believer. Look at verse 3. He says, already you're clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Folks, how do you get clean? How do you get forgiven? How do you get put right with God? By believing God's Word. What does Romans 10 say? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God uses the Scripture to clean us. To get us saved and then to get us discipled. I want you to turn with me over to 2 Timothy to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now the context of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy is Paul, Paul is telling Timothy about how bad the world is going to get. And men are going to wax from evil to evil. They're going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Paul's pointing out the world's not going to get better as time goes on. The world's going to get worse as time goes on. But he said, Timothy, you're different though because you're a believer. Look what he began saying there in verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now underscore what he says next, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what does the Word of God do? The Word of God points out to us that we're sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God and we can't do anything to save ourselves. The Word of God, the good news, first of all, points out the bad news. The bad news is... I'm estranged from God. I'm alienated from God and I'm under the wrath of God because I'm a sinner. And I can't do anything whatsoever to change my own status. But the same word of God that points out to me my condition and my sin also tells me God's done something about my situation. He sent a Savior. He sent His Son. And so I come to faith in Jesus Christ through the testimony and the teaching of God's Word. Now, is, is, is the role of the Word of God over in my life now? Now that I'm saved, can I close my Bible and put it on a shelf and forget all about it? No. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, what he's saying there after we believe the testimony of scripture and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ what does the scripture do then it disciples us we grow as a believer on the word of God we're taught we're established in the faith as a believer through the word of God the word of God cleanses us that's what Jesus is saying back in John 15 3 you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you Jesus is saying you've believed my word you've believed my testimony of who I am you're clean because you've come to me it's not just Paul who says this too in 2nd Timothy look over at James chapter 1 in James chapter 1 and and verse 21 James 1, 21, 
James says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive the implanted word which is able to do what? Which is able to save your souls. Then one more place over in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1 verse 23. 1 Peter 1, 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass weathers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. But back again in verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Whether it's John 15, 3, whether it's 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, whether it's James 1, 21 or 1 Peter 2, 23. You see what the scripture is telling us? How do we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Through the testimony of God's word. God's word is the instrument that God uses to bring about salvation and then discipleship in a believer's life. That's what Jesus is speaking of. And folks, that alone ought to make any professing believer not want to go a day in their life without reading and studying the Scripture. It's that important. What do we tell our kids when they were growing up? What do we tell them about their physical diet? Boys and girls, you need to eat your... Fruits and vegetables, right? You need to eat right. It's important. You want to grow physically, you got to eat right. Boy, Connie and I had a battle with Brian on that one. He hated fruits and vegetables and does to this day. Anybody else can relate to that? Anybody else have that problem with the kid? Couldn't get him to eat their fruits and vegetables. So one day when he was only about three or four years old, we said, okay, Buster, you're going to sit there at the dinner table until you eat these kernels of corn on your plate. You're at least going to try them. Even if you don't eat them all, you're going to try Because after all, how do you know that you hate them if you've never even tasted them? I don't want them. Yeah, you got to eat them. you got to try it. you got to at least try it. So he sat there. We finished, got up, cleaned our places. He sat there. We made him sit there. He sat there until he started shaving. <laughs> Just <laughs> Seriously, though, probably after about 20, 25 minutes, can I get up? No, you're going to at least try them. And so you know what he did so he could avoid chewing them up and tasting them? He got him a glass of water and would take one kernel of corn at a time and pop it in his mouth and he would take it like it was an aspirin tablet or a pill. And he sat there and he did that with all those kernels of corn and he would swallow them so he could get up from the table. Folks, if proper nourishment is important to our body that will live three score and ten years, then how about your soul that's going to live somewhere for all of eternity? How much more important is nutrition for your soul? The role of the Word of God. Third thing I want you to see. The role of the believer in his own Christian life. Turn back again to uh, John 15 verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now folks, think about this. Of all the things that Jesus could have emphasized with his disciples in these few remaining hours that he had with them, abiding is the one thing that he mentioned here ten times in these verses. Now, if you tell somebody something ten times, are you trying to make a point? Are you trying to make a point? You're trying to make a point, aren't you? Ten times. Abide in me, and me and you. Abide in my word, and my word abide in you. 
Ten times. That's what we must do. Abiding, first of all, we see here is necessary for fruit bearing. Now, don't miss this, folks. Bearing fruit is not the result of human achievement. Bearing fruit is not the result of human achievement. Bearing fruit is the work of Christ at work within us as we abide in Him. Also, abiding reflects dependence on God. We're helpless on our own. We're not the vine. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Now, what's He mean by that? Let's think about that a minute because obviously... He means something significant. On the one hand, practically speaking, you can do a lot of things without Christ. The unbeliever does it every day. What's the unbeliever do? He gets up, gets a shower, gets dressed, ready for work, gets in his car, goes to work, works his work day, comes home, might cut his grass, wash his car, go to a ball game. A lot of stuff that he does without Christ. He's not even a believer. So what's Jesus talking about? There is nothing that you and I can do of any type of eternal significance bringing glory to God apart from Christ. There is nothing you and I can do that will make any difference in eternity apart from Christ. If you and I fail to abide in Christ... If we fail to come to Him and be, have our lives changed, our souls saved, and then we fail to abide in Him, we might get to the end of our life and we've accomplished the world. You might have gained the whole world and lost your own soul. That would mean your life is one big fat zero. You've lived for the wrong things. Do you want to live that way? I think not. Far too many Christians even are not abiding in the Lord. They're just living every day just to survive. Might be a lot of activity going on in their lives, but not much happening. Now let's be honest. How many days have you lived like that? There are plenty of days we can look back on. We can look back on weeks and say, you know what? I have not accomplished anything whatsoever this week of real kingdom value. You ever, you ever been able to say something like that? Sure you have. But on the other hand, if we abide and His pruning is going on, then we're amazed at the difference that He makes. We look at all of our relationships differently. We start looking at all of our opportunities differently, our time differently, our Christian service differently. Everything about our relationship to Christ, uh, everything about us changes because of our relationship to Christ. Now, there's a warning in this passage, too. Look at verse 6. Jesus said here, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and, and they're burned. Jesus is saying, here's someone who really doesn't even belong to me. There might be the appearance of belonging, but there's no true belonging. And so the only thing left in the end for that person is to be treated like a dried up branch that has no life. It'll be tossed out and burned. Folks, who's he probably talking about there? Who's the example there? Judas. Judas. Judas was called to be a disciple just like the other disciples. Judas, Judas spent three years with Jesus just like the other disciples did. Judas saw the same miracles the others saw. He heard the same teaching the others saw. He experienced the same thing Peter and James and John and the others experienced. But was Judas saved? No. No. He wasn't. Judas hung around Jesus for three years and enjoyed everything that the true vine had to offer, but there was never any vital connection. You see what Jesus is saying? It's possible to hang out with God's people, to be exposed to all of the blessings of God, and yet not truly be one of His. And what's going to show that in your life? That as a pattern, 
I'm not talking about a little temporary lapse or stumbling. As the pattern of your life, the years and the decades of your life, there's no interest whatsoever in the things of God or abiding in Christ. You can hang out with Christian folks, but you're not interested in kingdom things. You're not interested a bit. And again, that's the pattern of your life. If that's true, it ought to serve as a warning. Hey, there's something here I need to look at and make sure of. And then lastly, and I'm just going to mention these and close. The obedient believer's blessings. Blessings. Verses 5 and 8, bearing fruit. When you get saved and you abide in the true vine, what's he start bringing about in your life? Fruit. When the Bible speaks of fruit, it speaks of it in two senses, inner fruit and outer fruit. What's the inner fruit? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, meekness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That ninefold fruit of the Spirit, inner fruit, that God does in your life. God changes you from the inside out. When you're converted and when you abide in Him and His Word abides in you from the inside out, He's changing you. There's a man in our church one time, his wife said this to him, and, I'm, and, and she wasn't complaining. Don't get me wrong, she wasn't complaining at all. She was thankful. But she told me about a week or two after this guy was saved, he was radically saved. She said, Pastor... I don't even know who this man is anymore. I don't even know who he is anymore. I have no idea who he is. She said, I like it. Guys, if your wife says there's change, if she notices it, boy, there must really be a change, right? If your wife says, I don't even know who this guy is anymore. That's the change he makes in us, that inner fruit. And then the inner fruit, because of the inner fruit, we're changed from the inside out. There's the outer fruit. We impact other people's lives for Jesus Christ. And notice what Jesus says about that fruit. We, abide, we, we bear fruit, then we bear more fruit, and finally we bear much fruit. You see, as the years go by, and, and we're abiding, and we're growing, and we're in His Word, and He's maturing us, and, and the Father's pruning us, and disciplining us, and we're becoming more and more like Christ. He's doing His work in us. Then, then what happens? Our lives are becoming more and more and more fruitful. And who gets the glory for that? God does. Remember what they said about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9, everybody was scared to death to hang out with Paul because they still thought he might be like, he was Rabbi Saul who persecuted the church. When they were finally convinced that he really was saved, the Bible says they gave glory to God. Who did they give glory to? Did they give glory to Paul himself? No. They gave glory to God. When they saw the change in Paul's life, the fruit that God was now bringing out of Paul's life, they gave glory to God. We're to bear fruit and give glory to God. Then answered prayer, verse 7. Jesus says, as this process is going on in, in me and you, as we're abiding in Him, we're going to see more and more answered prayer. You know why? Because you, as you're abiding in Him and He in you and His words abiding in you, then you're going to be asking for things that are pleasing to Him. You see, if we're carnal Christians, then we're asking for things that aren't pleasing to God. But if His Word is abiding in us and He's transforming us and changing us, then, then we are learning more and more and more what we ought to be praying about. And we're praying according to the Word of God and the will of God. And Jesus says when that happens, you're going to see answered prayer. 
And then next, there's assurance in the believer's heart. Jesus says, you'll bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When you yourself see the difference he's making in your life, you know what you're going to be able to do? You'll go to bed at night reflecting on your life before Christ. Now that you are a Christian, you'll say, wow, you know what? He really has done a work of transforming grace in me. I really am different. Assurance. And then finally, verse 11, joy. Jesus says you'll have joy. Somebody says you abide in Christ, get serious about your Christian walk. Isn't God going to be a kill joy? Isn't all your freedom and liberty going to be gone? No. Guess what? You're going you're to learn that in Christ... You have a newfound freedom and liberty and joy that you never had before. The Christian life is not bondage. The Christian life is freedom. All of those are the blessings that come out of abiding. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. Close your eyes. Folks, this is how we're supposed to be living until Jesus comes. Abiding in Him. But I want to ask some of you this morning, do you even know Him? Could you be one that's hung out with God's people? Spent time with God's people? Seen God work in other people's lives? And yet, there's no vital connection in your life to Jesus. If that's true, you don't have spiritual life because He's the vine and life comes from the vine. Come to Christ today. I'd love to pray with you. Ask God to convert your soul, to save you. No doubt there's believers who know beyond a shadow of doubt. That's happened in your life. But somewhere along the way, you've gotten slack and negligent and lazy, and you're not abiding in Him and in His Word anymore. And you know what? You've seen your own spiritual life grow distant. You're following the Lord at a guilty distance, and quite frankly, not much is happening. Get back to abiding. You're the one that'll be most blessed by that. Lord, work in the hearts of your people. You know the true needs. Speak to hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.